Gilgalad was an elven king, of him the harpers sadly sing, the last whose realm was fair and free, between the mountains and the sea. Welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. I am joined, as always, by your co-host, Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. that hideous, hideous orc that pushes her into a pit. <laughs> and I am joined by Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Aaron Deer, the Sylvan Elf. And we are joined by a special guest, Harry, a.k.a. Gilgalad, the Elven King. Welcome, Harry. Thank you so much. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with my first name, I also go by Daily Rings of Power on Twitter. So in case you're thinking, who's this Harry fellow? Uh, not an imposter, just a, a, an avid tweeter, I'm afraid. <laughs> That's all it takes to get on this podcast. Just for <laughs> You just have to tweet a certain number of times yeah. and then you are qualified. But no, I, you know, I realize that I didn't even know your first name until about five minutes ago, uh, just because we've interacted exclusively on Twitter. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun to do so. You know, you jumped on Twitter, uh, I don't know, what, a month ago? I mean, two months ago, maybe? Yeah, I, I jumped on on June the 8th after months of thinking, oh, I really want to engage with the community. No, nobody cares what you have to say. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then eventually I just thought, you know what, let's do it. And it has been the most amazing last month and a half. I've met so many kind people. I now have a bunch of mutual, I might be overstepping to say friends on Twitter, but I'm sure they'll appreciate that. And every day I get to log on, have fun conversations with people, speculate, and um, meet cool people like you. So uh, honestly, it's been a wonderful two weeks, uh, two months, sorry. It, time flies when yeah. you're having fun. <laughs> yeah, generally, it is just a very warm community, which th th that might be the first time anyone has ever said that a community on Twitter is warm. But, uh, there, <laughs> you know, and there are certainly uh, the corners of the uh, Twitter Tolkien community mm. that aren't, but um, it's easy to find the good folks on there and you're one of them. So we're really thrilled to have you on. And uh, for a great topic, the, the world has been abuzz, the Tolkien world at least, well, and just about every other comic and fantasy related fandom is just uh, going nuts because San Diego Comic-Con uh, is this weekend. We are recording on Sunday, so there's been just tons of news. My brain is full, and I'm about to empty my brain into my microphone to try and free up some space. So um, we got our a full trailer. A, you know, I thought we had a full trailer, but I had no idea what a full trailer could be until I saw the one that they dropped at San Diego Comic-Con. Over three minutes, so much new stuff, uh, and we're going to go through all of that today. So take this as, listener, as your spoiler warning, uh, because we're getting into that trailer. But before we do, I guess just a very brief second, Harry, why don't you give us your origin story, your Tolkien origin story? I, I'm not sure that that's ever been uh, revealed on Twitter before, so I, we're breaking news here. I want to capture that story first. Yeah, uh, in a hole in, a gra in the ground, there lived a small boy from rural England. Um, but no, I grew up um, in kind of small village, much, much of a likeness to Tolkien, I suppose. I grew up in a small um, rural area of the country, the Midlands, actually, same area as Tolkien. And uh, yeah, when I was very young, I don't know how young, my parents used to play for me the BBC radio adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. People know oh. it as the Brian Sibley one. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, I still to this day remember we had it on CD. So for any of you people, you know, under the age of 20, CDs were a thing we used to have. Um, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I used to listen to that all the time. I was terrified of a lot of the characters, but I love the music. And then the first film came out, obviously, in 2001. And I was outing my age a little bit here. I was 27. Uh, uh, sorry, no, I'm 27 now. That is wrong. I was... <laughs> I was seven at the time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, like, I know. I look older than I am. I know. I know. I look terrible. Got elvish blood. <laughs> I know. I look terrible for twenty-seven, but great for forty-seven. Um, but no, yeah, I I watched it when I was seven years old, and I remember going to the cinema in uh, my local town, and they had a big cutout of the ringwraiths charging across the ford of Bruinen, and I remember seeing the film, being hooked, and going home and saying do we have copies of the books? And they said, yeah, but, you know, you're seven years old, and, you know, maybe not. But I did read it. I'm, I can't honestly say I understood a lot of it at age seven or eight, but sure. I did power through it. And the link with the current show is, because I found the actual novel very hard to read, I got obsessed with going to the appendices, because it's basically just Wikipedia, but for Tolkien, you know, it's this happened, this person was this person. And so even at seven, eight years old, when I first read Return of the King, I was, I was reading about this and going, oh, and so this was this person and this had to do with that. So when I heard they were making a show based on the appendices, it, it really reignited my passion in a big way. Um, but yeah, that's my origin story. So thank you. Well, good on your parents for introducing you. Get them started young. That's what I say. Well, without further ado, because I know, Jen, you might have to drop off in a minute here because you're on baby duty. So I want to get to it as soon as we can. We are going to talk about the trailer, the just most exciting thing I've seen that's Tolkien related in a long time, except for, I guess, you know, actual new books that are being released, like The Fall of Numenor. But setting that aside, this trailer uh, just blew my socks off and... I, I want to hear, I think it blew everyone's socks off just seeing the, the, the internet reaction, you know, there's other than the nerd rotics, you know, I think everybody is really enthusiastic about what they've seen. And so I want to start this off by asking uh, both of you, what was a, your sort of overall reaction, just, you know, how did it hit you in your gut? And what was the highlight? Like pick your, the scene, the image, the, even if, if it's music, whatever it is, the thing about the trailer that really got your blood pumping the most. Hey, let's start with you. Uh, well, my initial reaction was, I think, as most people, I was blown away. Interestingly, I'm, I'm going to say something controversial, despite people think I only say positive things about the show. I actually liked the previous trailer more, but I think that this trailer will play a more important role in the marketing. And I say that because... Um, it did what a lot of big media companies do now, where their first trailer for a film or TV series sets up the heroes, the good things, the scenery, and then trailer two sets up the stakes, the villain, the tension. And I think that's what this trailer was designed to do, you know, show us lots of people who could be Sauron, show the looming threat, talk about evil a lot, and show some of the action sequences that mainstream audiences uh, are going to want to see. As for the shot or scene that stayed with me the most this is kind of cheating because it wasn't the first watch it was when i was going back through it a second time when galadriel has the vision of through the palantir of all the things happening the scene where she's standing over finrod's body and a single tear rolls down her cheek it just 
it it, it moved me in ways I, I wasn't expecting, and I think given what a lot of the cast and crew said at Comic-Con, I think that idea of grief and loss and what you do with that grief and loss is really going to define the show. So that would be my answer on favorite scene. Yes, and I'm going to sound very unoriginal, but uh, (laughs) that was also my answer. That scene was so emotional. Um, And seeing Galadriel sort of in mourning was so powerful. But my my initial reaction, I loved it, first of all. I had full body chills. It was scary in a way that I didn't expect the villains um, to come through. So you had the Balrog. What a what a shock, um, and and how exciting to see that um, that we might get to see the Balrog uncovered for the first time. Right? We might we might see a Balrog uncovered. What's the rating on this um, that show? That was really exciting. <laughs> An R-rated Balrog, um, but also you know a mysterious sea yeah. monster, uh, frightening scenes of of um, um, some kind of monster grabbing the Sylvan Elf Arondir from behind. Just a lot of um, horror aspects, which um, Harry mentioned earlier as we were chatting before we were recording, that this really was almost like a horror film trailer. Mm. Um, not hardcore horror, but, um, but scary in a way that I did not expect. Um, so yeah, overall excitement, the villains got me pumped up, Sauron, um, the, you know, possibly seeing Sauron was really exciting to me, um, a lot of new and very surprising elements here. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you, and I think, well, let me tell you my, my one scene, and it's hard to choose because there were so many scenes that that surprised me. And, um, but you know, the shot, the single image that, um, stuck with me the most was really the opening shot here of Galadriel Mm. before a mound of, of helmets. Um, you know, such a powerful image, the use of light coming in from behind her, uh, casting light on her looking at the, the amount of, of, you know, not bodies, Mm. but helmets. Um, it's also evocative of, you know, certain first stage stories. It's, it's not that, but there, there are stories about, you know, the mound of, of bodies in, in some first stage battles um, that they may have taken inspiration from when they mm-hmm. designed this shot. And, you know, to your point, Harry, this, when the second full length trailer, if, if its purpose is to show the stakes, well, this shows the stakes. This really shows uh, the history, where they're coming from, where they've been. Um, because we knew in the, from the prior trailer, Galadriel, for some reason, thinks that there's still a danger out there. This really adds a lot of color and depth to that because they're starting a time of peace, but that doesn't necessarily tell you how war stricken the time mm. before was. But this image really, I mean, if a picture is worth a thousand words, you know, this is worth 10,000 words because it really tells you the history and, and what she's been dealing with. And we'll see other shots later, you know, the, you mentioned the, the single tear and her crying over her brother's body. I mean, Galadriel has been through the ringer and to start off with this type of image, lays the foundation for everything that that, mm-hmm. co- that comes after, right? You know, the grief and how you deal with that and where you go. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of echoing things that have already been said, but it, it, it's because this is such an important theme and I'm glad they put that right up front because it creates the frame through yeah. which you see everything else that comes after. So this was, this was kind of my, my favorite. Speaking of the overall themes, um, what did you both think of, the theme of how far would you go into the darkness to protect what you love? 
that is sort of emerged as a major theme of the plot from the Comic-Con commentary that we've heard. And it, I think it definitely is apparent in this trailer that that's what they're going for. Yeah. What I think your reactions to that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think it speaks to, A, a major kind of Tolkienian theme, which is hope in despair. You know, you catastrophe, this idea that in the lowest moment you must still find hope and that idea of Estelle and the greater hope. Um, and, and to kind of reference something you both talked about there, when the cast were being interviewed at, at Comic-Con, there was this amazing quote from Benjamin Walker, who plays um, the High King, Gilgalad. And he said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, when you see everyone you love die over and over again, how do you muster the strength for hope? When you've lost love over and over again, how do you fall in love again? And this is the bit of the quote which I find so interesting. He ends it by, after saying, how do you fall in love again? He says, and they do. They fall in love with Middle-earth. And something the showrunners have said is that they want season one to be about why should we care? What are the stakes? Why should we care about this corruption, this fall, this danger? And I think what we're going to see is not only characters having care and love for each other, but the land and their history and their culture. And so I just think it's a really interesting way to look at that idea of hope amongst grief and despair. Yeah, well said. Uh, I will... I will present kind of a contrary view in that I thought that the particular verbiage that they chose, how far into the dark would you go to protect the ones you love? It it seems to invite the interpretation that that you'll have your good characters potentially succumbing to temptation. That we'll see sort of like, you know, the ring. So like Boromir wants to use the ring to save his people. So that's kind of it sort of fits that type of issue where a good person wanting to do something bad to accomplish something good. Um which would be a surprising turn for these characters because I never imagined that particular type of plotline to to be present in, in the second age. But, you know, there's a lot of gaps and a lot of places where they could play with that. So um, it's, it's kind of I'm curious where they're going with that and to what extent that will be uh, an is important the, thing. Is, there. is there a way of reading that especially towards Celebrimbor's storyline? In that, if you think about why the elves wanted to make the rings, they wanted to make it because outside of Amman and Valinor, they weren't able to preserve that, you know, immortal aspect of who they are. And so, you know, in many ways, I think it's about characters unknowingly going into darkness. And, and maybe a charitable reading of that line as well is, you know, quite literally, you will have to go and fight the darkness to preserve the light. Um, but I also think there are characters who are going to set out with very good intentions. You know, I know some people read Farazon's character in a much more generous way than I would, but ultimately some people still see that as a character who thinks they're doing the right thing, who thinks they're trying to preserve their civilization and their culture, but does so through the darkness. So maybe there's that angle to it. Yeah, yeah, because the surface meaning is, of course, how far would you go? put yourself in danger to protect the ones you love right that's the that's the first layer meaning but it you know there's a potential other interpretation where it's you know how how well how far are you willing to experiment with darkness you know in your own soul to to protect the ones you love so that is an interesting angle and there's certainly characters that uh invite that type of treatment so the another thing that i wanted to talk about before we get into like specific shots there's lots of like interesting lore questions the balrog sauron there's all kinds of good stuff but Something that really got me is 
we finally get some dialogue, some real dialogue, you know, extended, extended dialogue in this trailer where we get to hear the poetry that um, the showrunners are putting into the show. And just last week, uh, we got to hear from the dialect coach. She did sort of a round of interviews with, with various Tolkienists, you know, YouTubers and podcasts. And A, she's, you know, if you haven't heard any of those interviews, to, listeners, you know, go find one because she's a joy to listen to. She clearly loves her work and it comes across every second that she's uh, being interviewed. Um, but you hear some interesting things and I'm not going to go through all of them because that's not the focus of this episode. But one thing she that, that I've learned is that the showrunners experimented with different types of heroic meter. So um, they studied Shakespeare at Yale. So they are thinking very consciously about writing in a type of meter with a type of rhythm, you know, the poetry uh, of, of words. They're not just talking about thinking about the meaning of words. They're talking about how they sound. If you take all meaning out of them, what's the sound, what's the rhythm to them. And they're very conscious of exploring different meters for different groups of people or for different characters. And now that we get our first taste of the dialogue, we get our first taste of that, that type of meter. And so for example, with Galadriel, I think you can kind of, you can kind of hear, and I don't, I didn't study this stuff. So if I get the meter wrong, that if I define the meter incorrectly, somebody, you know, email me and correct me. I'm all open to it, but you can, you can hear the IMs. So, you know, iambic meter is a, a unstressed followed by a stressed syllable. Um, just, you know, pairings of two. And with Galadriel, you can hear that there's some kind of iambic meter here. I think it's a tetrameter. It's, you know, four iambic feet, if I'm getting that right. And so let me just read some of her phrases and put them back to back and you can hear the, the meter. We thought the war at last was ended. We thought our joys would be unending. We thought our light would never dim. He has not one name, but many. And so you can, you can count the syllables and it's, it's either eight or nine. And there are, there are versions of iambic meter where there's kind of like an extra syllable put in there, but there's a rhythm to it that is consistent with between Galadriel's lines. And then Gil-Galad ha also has an iambic meter, but I think it's a, it's a, like a trimeter, three iambic feet. So our days of peace begin. That's like the one line we get from him. And you can hear in the delivery, the unstressed followed by stressed, our days of peace begin. You know, so I, I am so psyched to be able to watch this show. And if I want to delve into the poetry but even if I don't care about that, and there's plenty of people who aren't going to be like word nerds about it, that poetry is still going to affect your, your viewing. You know, it's, it's going to affect you, but it's, it's not, it's not distracting in any way. It feels very natural. Like if I didn't know to look for this, it just would have sounded like good dialogue to me. So I'm very enthusiastic about the dialogue we've heard and the use of meter, the subtle use of meter to try and explore the characterizations of these different people. Yes, such attention to detail there. And she she also talked, the dialect coach also talked a lot about working with the actors to get their accents right. And it's all contributing to the believability, right? And the immersing you in this world. Um, and just that, that careful, careful thought that they took to, to craft this dialogue is probably one of the things I'm most excited about. Um, because it's got this musicality to it already that, you know, Tolkien, Tolkien really cared about um, in his language. And what we've seen on screen so far definitely reflects that. Yeah, I think there's, uh, and I know, I think it was Rob Arameo referenced this, that, you know, um, 
Tolkien started with the languages, right? And so that's where you go back to. You go back to the words, the languages. The history grew out of the desire to create language, and the languages evolved in the history along, evolved along with it. And I think it's, uh, I know in that same interview, Leith um, McPherson, the dialect coach, also talked about something really interesting to me, um, maybe not to others, but to me, um, was that Quenya is going to be the primary form of Elvish spoken in the show which is super interesting because we haven't seen that in the Peter Jackson films much. We haven't really seen that in any adaptation. And I wonder to what extent the show will delve into the idea, as we kind of talked about this whole idea of the elves wanting to preserve their culture, that the Noldor that remain in uh, Middle-earth post the First Age and post the, the lifting of the ban of the Valar to what extent is that a way to hold on to culture? You know, is that a way to preserve identity and history if all your family's gone, but can you still hold on to the language? And we know how important oral traditions are in terms of storytelling. I think that's a really interesting choice they've made. I mean, I assume that Arondir and the other Sylvan Elves will still speak Sindarin, but um, it's very interesting to me they've made that choice, and I'll be interested to see if they, if they go into that in the show. I hope they do it, because as you say, they've clearly put a lot of thought into the dialogue and the words. Yeah, and I think that part of the reason for that choice is that one other thing that we learned is that the elves speak in English a lot um, to each other, where, you know, you would imagine actually in real life in Middle-earth, elves, when speaking to each other, would speak elvish. You know, if, you know, maybe Galadriel and Gilgalad were hanging out with each other, they might speak Quendi um, or... It, with uh, another Cinderin elf, they'd be speaking Cinderin all the time. They would never be speaking English to each other. But for the purposes of the show, they decided, okay, we're going to have them speak English most of the time. But then when they choose to uh, transition into Elvish, it's usually for some significant purpose, you know, a significant topic. It's for emphasis, something maybe more formal. And so if that's the case, if, if Elvish is being spoken in more formal circumstances, it would make sense then that the Elvish they're speaking is Quendi. Right, because the Noldoran exiles, to the extent they spoke Quendi in Middle Earth, I would imagine it would be uh, for more formal purposes, because Sindarin became more conversational. Um, you know, Quendi was a little bit more like Latin, so it would be for significant conversations and maybe more ceremonial things. But uh, it, it, that is a very interesting choice. Yeah, it's interesting as well that one of the other things Leith talked about was when they wanted to use Quenya. And what was most interesting to me was she compared it to Shakespeare. She said, think about when Shakespeare switches from uh, from prose to, to, to verse. You know, think about why that's done. And it's often done to lend emphasis, to lend tension, to importance, to draw the audience or the reader's attention in. And so I think it's very interesting. Um, Rob Aramayo has been talking about some of the uh, phrases he's been using and it sounds to me like some of them might even be slightly spiritual incantations almost um this idea of you know calling upon the help of their ancestors and the valar um one of the phrases he's been talking about in the uh in the interviews i think is el el mendea and i'm not sure what that means but i've i've had a go at translating it and el obviously stars starlight um and mende 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 seems to mean will or wish 
So it might be a way of saying the will of the stars or the will of the heavens, which is very similar to a lot of our world's languages, such as Arabic, where inshallah means God willing, and they're obviously phrased in other languages. So I think it's very interesting that Laith has talked about in other interviews this idea of spells and incantations and, you know, formal situations. So I think we might be about to see some really interesting use of language, far more so than we were able to see in the Peter Jackson films. Yeah, and just to put sort of a, a finer point on that, I, I've heard some people make mention of the fact that, you know, the showrunners are invoking Shakespeare and their experience with Shakespeare. And some people are pointing out that, well, Tolkien was not exactly a huge fan of Shakespeare. You know, as an Englishman and caring about English history, he had some complaints, uh, which, man, you know you know your stuff if you're in a position to complain about Shakespeare and say he's not doing some stuff right. So, you know, it is true that the use of meter in the way that they're exploring in the show is not what Tolkien did. You know, he didn't uh, have uh, Noldor and elves speak in one meter and Cinder and elves speak in another meter and uh, the men of Harad speak in another meter. Like, that's not pulled from from Tolkien exactly. Um, but Tolkien did use language to differentiate between groups and people. And so what these showrunners are doing is they're finding a way to do that in the show they're doing it kind of in a slightly different way, but it's very, very thoughtful. And I'm just very appreciative that they're finding a way to creatively explore language in this visual adaptation, because it would have been so easy for them to say, this is a visual medium. We're caring about the visuals and for the language to come secondary. And so I really appreciate that the language is really upfront um, among the many things that they have to think about. They're putting a lot of emphasis on it. And thank Eru Iluvatar for that. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> amen sister amen <laughs> all right well let's lest we spend any more time not talking about the the visuals let's let's get into it and i think it'd be good to start with start with a bang and the thing that maybe was the most eye grabbing and that would be sauron is he here have we seen sauron we've got some images looks kind of evil looks kind of fair looks kind of like what I might imagine Sauron to look like. But it's really, really unclear. But I got to tell you, when I saw the image of of that, um, and it turns out to be an actress, that actress as Sauron, I was like, or that actress as that character, I was like, well, that's Sauron. That's it, right? That, that has to be Sauron. But I have gone through some revisions in my thinking, so I have some ideas, but I kind of want to do, you know, roundtable style. I want to hear what both of you think. Have we seen Sauron for the first time? Harry, let's start with you. Yes and no. And what I mean by that is that I think we may have seen him, and here's my controversial take, I think we may have seen him in several forms. I am completely, I'm hoping, in fact, that the show decides to have Sauron appear in multiple forms, because what does that do for the audience? A, it does the thing that we should be doing, which is saying, who's Sauron? Where is he? He can shapeshift. He's everywhere. He's always watching, which is great. But also, it then reinforces the point um, that when he appears to the elves in Lindon and Eregion, that there's no there's no in, in initial reason they should mistrust him. And there's that great line that Galadriel says in the trailer where she says, um, he, he you know, he does not have one name, he has many. And we know from Tolkien that he, he does. He has five or six names, um, even just within the Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales. Do I think this person, this 
this this creepy looking individual with beautiful skin and, and and wonderful features is Sauron. I wish I wish it was because I love the aesthetic. I absolutely adore it. To me, it screams angelic yet evil. It's androgynous. I love everything about it. But no, I I don't think this is it. I think this is something different. Well, what do you th- who do you think it is? You can't leave us hanging. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I didn't want to steal your thunder, but um, I, I do think, and I tweeted about this today, I, I do think that it's a cultist of, of, of Morgoth. We have that, um, we have, uh, the, you know, the fantastic line uh, from the Silmarillion where he talks about this idea that because men awoke under the shadow of Morgoth, there were always men, the race of men, that is, who followed him down into darkness and worshipped him. Um and I think it would be a really great way of showing the audience that corruption is not a, it's not a light switch moment. It's a gradual thing. And so this idea that there has always been this corruption, both of the Eldar and the Adine, I think is, is a really smart choice. I also think a lot of um, the aesthetics, and we can maybe get into that in a bit, of, their, of the three cultists, if, that, if I'm right, the three cultists' costumes, uh, I think there's some really interesting design choices going on there. But that's what I think. Jen? I think how could this not be Sauron? I know a lot of people are saying it's not him. You know, we know for sure. But I think that the showrunners are not going to confirm it. No one's going to confirm it because this is our big baddie of the of the season. And I think it, it makes so much sense that the, this aesthetic was so surprising to me that it was youthful and that um, it was, as you said, androgynous. Everything about it was surprising, but the voice was just perfect. The voice that comes out of this individual, or I guess we don't see it come out of this person's mouth, um, but the voice was so great. I mean, just that you've been told many lies about this Middle Earth and the sort of silky way that it's said is it's just, totally perfect but um i love the youthful aspect you know it it really tracks with the promising um everlasting life and and youth and the appeal um of all of that but i i i I do agree with you that sauron will take many forms i i think this is one of them i would be surprised um if it's not just because i think it works to sort of reveal um, reveal his identity or not reveal it. It'll just keep it keep it ambiguous. But um, I, I I personally think that this that we're seeing Sauron here in in a youthful form. I I like the cultist theory, but I mean, look at this. Look at this face. Mm. Like that is an evil, menacing face, mm-hmm. and it looks otherworldly to mm. me. Like much more otherworldly than just a Numenorian, a corrupted Numenorian would be. Mm. There's nothing to indicate that their appearance would change when they're corrupt. Well, and the eyes look a little inhuman, right? I mean, in one of the shots here. Yes. Looks like a creature. Which, you know, sorry to the actress. Like. And we know that that is your actual face. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> I mean, there's makeup and things happening. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, whatever the makeup, she has stunning jawbones. So, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think she's going to be worried about three podcasters on the internet saying she looks creepy i, I imagine that <laughs> how was dare a side you effect. we our reach is significant exactly <laughs> we make or break people's <laughs> reputations here on watch party no <laughs> no i so i um i think i am uh, gonna be team harry on this one and uh I, I was joking with 
with Harry on Twitter that uh, we had to have him on the pod because he keeps tweeting out theories that I plan to <laughs> plan to make on the podcast. Now, at this point, it's impossible for me to say anything original anyway. There's just like uh, uh, the Internet is full of brilliant Tolkienists who are going to spot every single detail. Mm. So, you know, it's unreasonable for me to hope that I can have any original ideas um, and for people to wait until they come out on the podcast. But nonetheless, I was giving him grief because uh, I think I have something smart and then he tweets it out. <laughs> And and this is a case in point because <laughs> I'm sorry. No 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 no. It's it's great. But this is a case in point because I, I I like I think most people saw this and was you know saw this character, and you know the use of magic or what appears to be some form of magic, um, made me think. Well, this has to be Amaya, oh, right? I mean, this has to be a supernatural being we've never seen depicted, and really, it's not even referenced hardly anywhere um, that. Any being other than a Maiar of Valar would be able to use magic. Now, hobbits refer to what the elves do as elvish magic, so fine. Um, but I was I was seeing you know this character blow fire out of their hand, and I thought, okay, this has to be a Maiar, and thus it must be Sauron. Um, that kind of evolved in part because, well, we see not just this one char- creepy character, but we see the three, and it just didn't feel right to me that Sauron's walking around with, you know two other people that basically look the same, you know, very, very similar dress. Somehow I just don't see Sauron like going for hikes with uh, his followers. I think there's, I think there's something, there's two interesting points. I think from what you said, one about the magic thing. I've been thinking about this a lot today because there's been speculation about who in the show is going to turn out to be a ring wraith. And there's a perception because of the Peter Jackson films that they were all Lords of men. It's not true. It's a line from the film, but it's wrong. The line from the books is that some were lords, but some were warriors and some were sorcerers. And so part of me thinks that could this possibly be one of the future nine? Um, That that could be possible. And I think the other thing that really interested me is I, I know their designs are similar, but actually if you look between the three, the one on the, uh, left-hand side is wearing armor a a helmet and maybe even a breastplate difficult to tell but definitely armor and has long blonde hair middle has this almost priest like robes with a staff and maybe the staff's head looks like the eye of sauron so could that be it and then the the one on the Right. right appears to be holding an ornamental dish you might see at a fancy restaurant so i have no theories about them but i do like it yeah i don't know what's going on there maybe you know the priest or priestess gets hungry and had their servant bring along a bowl of fruit. You know, I don't know what's going on with this plate, mm. but um, I think it is worth noting that the, the dress is very, um, there's a lot of ornamentation. The quality of the cloth is very high. Um, so if I had to place the race of men, let's assume that these are, this is a race of men uh, corrupted by Morgoth. I like the idea that they're from out East, but I think the quality of the workmanship of what we're looking at is a little too high for, for that group. I mean, it is, it is on par with what we've seen of the Numenorians. Mm. And in fact, I think that what we see in the close-up shot, I think we see some, the circular, I don't know what you would call this, but it's some sort of a necklace. The design of this is reminiscent of the circular items that we see uh, Farazon uh, wearing. His are gold. Um, mm. They're, you know, more like suspenders top to bottom. As, whereas these are strung across the breast. But, uh, Somehow the design is reminiscent to me. And so if I had to play, put my money on it, I would say that this is a Black Numenorian. You know, we know that this is happening mm. near the end of the Second Age. 
Uh, I think they would monkey with the timelines a little bit, but they don't really need to monkey with it because there's nothing, no reason for us to believe that Numenorians weren't already falling under Sauron's sway before he had crafted the rings. I, I don't think there's anything prohibiting us from from believing that. So I think this would be a, a black Numenorian that has fallen under his influence. You know, obviously there's going to be some machinations at work. They don't look very happy. Mm. Not a very, very happy face, but I think this is an occultist of Morgoth that's that's under the influence of, of Sauron. So I agree with you there. I think the voice that we hear later, which felt very much like a message that Sauron would would be giving the elves. I mean, you've been told many lies in Middle Earth. That is that's straight out of out of the text, not word for word, but you know, that's how Sauron manipulated the elves. In particular, he tried to tell them, look, uh, the Valar have abandoned you. And then he goes on to say, well, they're jealous of you. And, and so he uses various versions, but he's just trying to say the things that, trying to tell them that the things that you thought you knew about the Valar are untrue. And so this line, you know, you've been told many lies about Middle Earth is, is very consistent with that. But just because that message is being spoken doesn't mean it needs to be spoken by Sauron. It could be spoken by one of his acolytes. It could also be spoken by, this is my personal theory, Adar, who we know is the primary antagonist of this season one. Not under the sway of Sauron from what we've heard, but I think is perhaps indirectly been corrupted by his influence in some way. And we'll, we'll you know, we don't know much about Adar, but that would be my guess. I think that that is, uh, you know, Adar we know is a fallen elf of some kind. I would not be surprised if that voice is from Adar. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I tweeted out yesterday that I'm, I'm ninety nine percent sure it's Adar, um, or Adar, or however his name is going to be pronounced. Um, mainly because I, I watched quite a bit of the actor Joseph Maul in a show called Ripper Street. He was, uh, yeah, he was a sort of season villain, I think, in the third season, and he has this incredible rasp to his voice. It's very quiet. But it has this raspy quality, yeah. and I think mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons he was chosen um, for this role. And I know we probably see a glimpse of him in the trailer later, but I do think it's interesting, like you say, that he, in many ways, is almost saying the same. There's the great passage in uh, the Akalabeth where Sauron starts to corrupt Farazon, and he says, "You know, you've been told a lie about your mortality. It's not. Right. It's not yep. Eru who controls." your mortality there is another there is this lord of darkness and the darkness is not a bad thing so again going back to your point about that tagline they've been using for comic-con how far into darkness would you go to protect the light it's a really interesting thought maybe that that is going to be a running theme in the show from season one that for the for the non-elvish characters this fear of mortality is actually going to drive a lot of actions and so i think i think it's really interesting they've given that line to what is probably going to be a, a, a one-season villain at, at best, I would imagine. Well, and I like the idea that, I like that they've dressed these occultists in white because I think when you read The Silmarillion, when you read Unfinished Tales, because of the way it's written, you as the reader are never wondering, is Morgoth actually a good guy? Does Sauron have some good motivations? Uh, you're never left to wonder that. You know, It is very clear to you who the bad guy is. Um, but that's just because of the frame that the myth is told through, right? That's that's the the framing. The show doesn't have to ad- adopt that framing, and obviously it hasn't. Otherwise, we'd be getting kind of like a documentary style uh, a series with voiceover, right? 
they're not doing that. They're putting it together into a narrative. And we get to see, you know, and, and the text doesn't talk much about how Morgoth corrupts and how Sauron corrupts, except for in the one instance where he comes to the elves in a fair form. So we know that Sauron is trying to present himself as a good guy until he's totally revealed. And I, I think that could be true for, you know, in the olden times, the way Morgoth would corrupt folks. That there's no reason to think that he didn't also use persuasion. And, uh, you know, actually we know from the Silmarillion, he was often presenting himself as a good actor when he was trying to manipulate the elves in Valinor, when he was trying to fool the other Valar. He often put on, uh, you know, a fair visage and tried to fool them. And so the use of deception and to present oneself as good character and appeal to their good instinct uh, while simultaneously having malevolent intent that is part and parcel with how Morgoth and Sauron operate so I like that we're seeing these occultists yeah they, they seem evil in the trailer but they're also dressed in white and we also hear and we're going to pivot to Theo and, and Bronwyn in a second that Bronwyn is, is descended from people who worship Morgoth in the east and so it's not going to be obvious Hopefully it's not going to be obvious to the viewer, and it's certainly not obvious to the characters in the show itself that Morgoth is bad, that Sauron is bad. I think it's going to be complicated, and I hope they show the seductiveness that, that Sauron can, that can present. Yeah, definitely. I think the line I keep going back to in my head is, 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 is funnily enough from the original trilogy where you know Frodo says, I think a servant of the enemy would look fairer and feel fouler. And I wonder for how many uh, how many new people to to the to, to the show who've not read the Silmarillion or the appendices or unfinished tales. I wonder how many of them will actually cotton onto that and, and remember that line because you know very clearly they look at Adar's character poster. He is presented with a black spiked fist. You know uh, the the orcs are obviously gruesome looking, but none of those individuals or groups are actually going to be the big bad. The the big bad is the beautiful elvish character who turns up in Eregion saying, I'm an emissary of the Valar, I'm a teacher, I'm a servant of, of Aule, let me help you, let me teach you. And so, yeah, I, I think, like you say, the, the aesthetic choice to have them in white is so smart. And I think it's interesting, and I'm sure this is about to lead into what we're going to talk about, it's interesting that they're trying to lead us in the exact opposite direction with Theo, with the sword, with this item about his history, and I do wonder whether we're, we're being led down two separate garden paths at the same time. And I hope we are, because that'll make it so much more interesting, both for non-readers of the books, but also for readers of the books. You know, if, if it's obvious who everyone is and what everyone's motives are, that makes for kind of an uninteresting show. Um, and so I, I, I think there's complexity to mine, and I think they are trying to mine it. Hello, everyone. My name is Jordan Rennells. And with my friend Katie, we are both working to create and share art for all of our favorite fandoms at 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. We have bookmarks, so many stickers, earrings, prints of all sizes, super small, and all the way up to 24 by 30 inches to really show off all of your favorite characters. We have coloring books, keychains, and always more on the way. So if you want a Hobbit Hole bookmark, or a set of Legend of Zelda Korok earrings, stickers for all of your favorite Marvel characters, or a big wall art poster of the Night's Watch Vows words so that you can recite them every time you need to pump yourself up, head over to 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. 
can even use the code WATCHPARTY10 to get a 10% discount. That's Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. But yeah, let's pivot on to Theo. And uh, we get some interesting scenes. Let's not even talk about the scenes. I'm just going to jump straight to a potential theory. Is Theo a young ringwraith? So, my answer, you've, you've got me there. You've got me there. Because I think, I think the show wants us to think that. I think the show is screaming in our face that, that this young, innocent boy is going to, is going to fall to d- darkness. And much like Meteor Man holding an apple, falling in a comet like a Middle-earth Lucifer, I feel like we're getting total misdirection here. Mm. And it, it, not to keep going back to this phrase, but I think it goes back to this idea of how far into darkness would you go to protect the light. And there's a line that Bronwyn says to Theo in the trailer, which, um, yes. let me just pull that line up. She says... Uh, where is the line? Two seconds. She, she, she says something along the line of, you know, follow the light and the darkness will never find you. It's, it's something like that. I yeah. don't have the exact quote. And I think that's what we're going to see with Theo. I think we're going to see him wrestle with his with his history in the same way that Aragorn does in, in at least the film adaptation. I know in the books he's a much more straightforward character, but in the film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn wrestles with this idea. Is it Elendil? Or Isildur's blood that runs in his vein? Is it the strength or the weakness of, of Numenor? Mm. And I, I do wonder whether we're going to see the same with Theo. Now, if he is a ringwraith, great, I'll be in for it. Makes complete sense. Um, wouldn't hate it at all. Think it would make his relationship with Bronwyn super interesting, having a mother who 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 loses her son to the darkness. Of course, I think that would be great. Um, but I'm going with Trixie showrunners trying to lead us astray, to be honest. <laughs> well, uh, I hope that the showrunners are not being tricksy, and I hope we are uh, being shown a glimpse will actually be because it has been one of my hopes from the beginning that we would see the story of a ring wraith from start to finish um, because they, I think their arcs are tragic ones. I mean, we see that um, that's said by Aragorn in the text, and we, it's mentioned in the movies as well um, because they are also deceived. I mean, they're servants of the enemy, but they were... The same way that Sauron is tempting the elves with the ring by, you know, tempting them with the power to preserve, appealing to something that they want to accomplish that is arguably not inherently corrupt. It's not necessarily a bad thing, although uh, perhaps misguided. The temptation of the men would be would be similar. And I could see an arc here with Theo. Uh, clearly, their town is under siege of some kind. You know, we get a shot of Bronwyn speaking to the people, you know, we can survive this. There's another shot of a villager holding up a sword. So clearly there's going to be some kind of threat, military threat on his village. We know they're attacked by orcs. We also see the shot of the orc, uh, Mm. the sort of horror movie-esque shot where the orc Mm. is coming after Bronwyn and Bronwyn's hiding in a room. So they're under threat. And I think that the motivation for Theo in accepting uh, a, a ring of power would be to try and protect his mother, protect his people. Um, now, he, he wouldn't get the Ring of Power until future seasons, so he would be older. Mm. Maybe his mother's dead, and we get kind of an Anakin Skywalker thing, right, where he's, mm. he's so uh, tortured from his mother's death and that he couldn't save her, he couldn't protect her, she dies in this orc raid or whatever, what have you, um, that he wants the power to make sure that never happens again. I'll never let anyone die again. Um, I, I, you know, that's the last time I hope I make a comparison mm. 
to the uh, the prequels, uh, Star Wars prequels. But yeah. it would be a really, really tragic arc for Theo to, we see him experience loss. We see him want to protect, to do good things. And it is through that desire to do good that he is manipulated, which echoes what Gandalf tells us about the ring. You know, it would corrupt even him because he would want to do good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but through him, he would ultimately be corrupted. He would want to control. He would become a new dark Lord. And so that's, that, that would be a plot line I could really enjoy watching. Yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. And to be honest, while I'm saying that he's not going to be, I actually think that's just because I think I'm paranoid after watching too many shows that intentionally mislead. Um, I, think the evi- <laughs> I think the evidence clearly does point us towards that. I, I, uh, I think that uh, Bronwyn and uh, Arondir possibly mirroring Andreth and Ignor is, an, is another clue there. You know, w- what if whether it's Bronwyn or Aronde who dies, what what is the what is the impact there on Theo? And I a, a point we haven't touched on yet, but I think we, we probably will due to later scenes in the trailer. Um, the Numenorians are very clearly being set up in this season to come in as saviors. The orcs are attacking the villages. They need help. Galadriel goes there for their help and brings them back. But as we know from the Silmarillion those who come as saviors and in, in a way liberators very quickly become conquerors and oppressors. Yes. And so, as you said, what if it's not the fact that he's trying to save his village and his family from orcs, but what if the Numenorians displace his people? What if they take over? What if they're ruling? And, and you know, Sauron yes. comes back to the east after being, you know, kind of turned away or, or leaving Eregion after helping Celebrimbor. And, and says, you know, look, you people, you had your land, you had your freedom, and now look, these these men who live on their island paradise are coming here and trying to take that all away from you. So I could definitely see that. And obviously this sword, it may be in a very similar manner to, like we see other objects in Middle-earth's history, the object corrupts the owner, you know, whether it's the rings, whether it's Gurthang, um, the sword, which I think this is clearly visually referencing, even though it's yeah. it's not. Um, the same sort. I, I think there's, I think there's a lot of interesting parallels throughout the legendary. Absolutely, and I, th- I think it will be important for us to see Numenorians as the oppressors at some point. It, it looks like we're not going to get that in this first season because, you know, Galadriel's at the head of a of a Numenorian cavalry. She, it looks like she's. I think these battle scenes that we saw with her in, in prior trailers, you know, it's hard to place. We didn't know what timeline it was or where it was. I think that. It's at one of these villages where the Numenorians are coming in and there's some sort of battle because you can compare the images and uh, it, it looks to be this, a similar setting. So, you know, she might be coming into, if not Bronwyn's village, uh, a, a neighboring village, and um, she somehow survives. This looks like there must be a, a really terrible mm. attack because there's fire everywhere. But anyway, Galadriel is coming in with the Numenorians to help in this first season. But as Numenor falls, it will be really, really important, I think, for us to see Numenorians come in and oppress the, the the men of the East. Because part of what's the way Sauron converts the, the men of the East and gets them under his sway is by using the threat of Numenor. Uh, he says, I can help you. I can save you from these Numenorian oppressors. And he's kind of not wrong because Numenor, they're genuinely bad guys at that point. They're terrible. Uh, I mean, it is said that, mm. that they were the worst tyrants <laughs> since Morgoth, which is saying a lot because Sauron was still out there. Um, and so, you know, Sauron could legitimately say, these people are, are attacking you. They're trying to oppress you Mm. and I can help. And so 
he doesn't really have to uh, use too much trickery at that point. He just has to point out what's true. And, you know, the only lie is that he has their best interests at heart. Um, so I, I think we will see that, if not this season, in a future season. And uh, I, <clears throat> I'm really excited for that because I thought that the stories of men in the East, the, these are the great untold stories. They're left totally on the fringes of the text in The Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, the, the closest we ever get to wondering about them is when Sam looks at the fallen soldier and, and wonders, you know, what lies brought him to this battlefield? Wouldn't he be happier at home? Um, and so to really explore those, those stories is something I'm extremely enthusiastic to do. Um, before we move on from Theo, there's a little nugget that I thought I was real, real clever. And I thought I was super eagle eyed, but then, you know, the internet got caught up to me. Um, no, this is another one where I got told off for tweeting it the day before. <laughs> no, no, no. There's an old man that I guess, you know, grabs, uh, Theo when he's sleeping out in the, the common area. I don't know what was going on there, but this old man grabs Theo mm-hmm. and you can't see it unless you're, you know, freeze framing every split second. Yep. Um, and this is the best shot I got of it. It's not very clear, but you can see a little black mark in the middle of his forearm. And uh, I've seen clearer versions of it. And it, they're little points that match exactly, I think, the handle of the sword, the evil sword. So it looks like it was like burned into him. It's some sort of brand. I don't know what it means exactly, but in some way he's marked. Um, I don't think it's like a bruise. I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, how it's important, I do not know yet, but I think it, we should keep an eye on that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think there's a couple of interesting things to note here. One, like you said, it matches the pointed hilt of uh, of of the sword. Whether it's a Morgul blade, who knows? But I think it's I think it's clearly echoing the visual uh, design of the of the Peace Jackson films there. I think the other interesting thing as well is that if you actually pause that scene where the old man grabs his arm, the old man is pulling up his sleeve as well. Now, that could just be yeah. that in that scene he's got his sleeves rolled up because he's a working he's a working man. But I think if you look at his other arm, the sleeve is at least to the forearm and he's pulling his own up. So is there a question here that this man is also corrupted and he sees something in Theo and recognizes it um and the third interesting thing I'd say which I only noticed a couple of hours earlier today I was re-watching the scene and when the blade starts to extend you know when it starts to uh, realize and the shadow forms around it if you look very carefully Theo is holding the blade towards someone there's 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 the clear outline of clothing maybe moving backwards or maybe standing there and yeah. so there's a real question to me is does Theo accidentally stab someone with the Morgul, if it is a Morgul blade, with the dark shadowy blade? And is this part of, you know, his transformation and his wrestling with that, you know, he he picks up this thing and then he does another harm. And in the doing of harm, it starts to corrupt, you know, his very essence and who he is. Yeah, it's, it's there you go again, you know, but I, I totally agree with you. That was a little something that I found. Um you know, it's it's very hard to make out because it's kind of on the fringes here. This is about as much as we see, but it does look like mm-hmm. a human form. So I didn't think that he would be stabbing somebody. It seemed to me that the flow of the sort of the mist of the smoke from the dagger, it seemed to be either going into or coming out of that figure. Your guess is as good as mine what that <laughs> could mean if that's the case. Um, yeah. It's also not 
conclusive to me that we are so in the trailer we see the the blade coalescing um mm. but it could be in reverse i mean it could be yeah. more like the morgo blade where he picks up the blade the the handle and the blade itself sort of disintegrates and all he's left with is a blade i wonder whether um they do a very interesting i thought it was a really interesting visual choice when you get the first shot of theo looking down at the handle um we've seen the still before but in motion the light through the 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 uh, the planks behind him, I assume it's the wall of the hut he's in or whatever, the light seems to glow and push in. And given the way they're also portraying Galad- Galadriel looking into the Palantir, I do wonder whether this is actually happening or he's seeing it in his mind. And that's a that's a third mm. theory, and I, I think it's the yep. least likely. But I But as you said, could the blade be coalescing or disappearing? Is it really happening? Is it not? Is it coming out of that individual? I, I think it's a fascinating scene. Um, and my best guess is that when we get to the scene, none of our guesses will have been correct. And we'll uh-huh. be going, oh, why did we ever think of that? That was so stupid. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's sort of the, the, the frivolousness of this exercise is part of the fun, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, we're going to end up being surprised anyway. Uh, before we move on from Theo, I do want to pause for a second again on that old man. And just... I. I like really thinking about why would an old man go up to a child on the street and say, have you heard of Sauron? Like there's actually a lot to unpack there. Mm. Clearly this old man in Tir Harad, whether he's a Numenorian or someone from the, his, the community is familiar with Sauron. Okay. So does that mean that there are, so Sauron is clearly at work. There are rumors of him. Is this old man kind of like a crazy missionary? You know, someone who mm. is, we've already talked about there being occultists of Morgoth. So if that's the case, if that's our theory of who the 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 character, that figure is that we thought was maybe Anatar originally, if we think they're actually just occultists of Morgoth, well, that occult is under the sway of Sauron, most likely. Um, you know, he's kind of pulling the strings behind that group, which means that he's really at work. And there are people out there spreading the good word of the Dark Lord. Mm. And this old man could be, you know, a low level uh, part of that, you know, church, the church of Morgoth. And, yeah. uh, he's going on, have you heard the good word? Have you heard of Sauron? <laughs> you know, it sounds evil, but maybe he's just really excited. <laughs> you, you're right. You're right. It is very much giving me that vibe of, do you have a moment to talk about our Lord and Savior, uh, Myron <laughs> slash Sauron slash Gorthar the Cruel, you know, whichever name you prefer. Right, right. <laughs> um, but I, but, but I do think you raise an interesting point. Um, uh, and one of the things I've thought about is, we know within the legendarium that every time Sauron or evil is defeated, it flees to the east. And to be yeah. honest with you, I think part of that is Tolkien bringing in his real-world biases about the west being enlightenment and the east being darkness, but I'm not going to get into that now. But what I think is interesting is and when, And to be fair, when asked specifically about that, he, he said that was not the case because he's like, actually, in my whole first, first age, you know, evil was primarily located in the north, right? That's where mm. uh, yeah. and then Atumno are. So he's like, he's like you're wrong! But, you know, yeah, he's not always I, the most honest about his own. I, I was going to say, he, he was always very good at saying one thing and then writing another. But, you know, we're all complicated individuals. But I think the interesting thing, and this is where I go back to the time compression, because this is basically all happening, happening within one Numenorean lifespan, we don't know where Sauron's been for however long the show is is setting the second yep. age. Um, so has he been in the East already corrupting people? Has he, uh, you know, been, like you say, resurrecting the cult of Morgoth? Has he been, who knows where he's been? I think there's lots of interesting theories about our other characters we've seen 
in the trailers and posters um sauron in, dis- in disguise so i think the time compression while it's going to irritate a lot of people and i have my concerns about how you might show some of the central themes of tolkien within one lifespan um it does open some really creative possibilities for them about what's sauron been doing this whole time he hasn't been building barrier yeah. he hasn't been building an army because we know that adar's the leading the orcs at the moment so it's it's a really interesting question in my mind is what has he actually been up to Right, and I think a part of trying to answer that question, we have to remember how far the East is from the action in the West. Um, and so we're, we're, we're told in certain places that, you know, the, the Avari, that's the elves that didn't go to Valinor, that there were plenty that sort of hung out in the East, never knew what was going on in Beleriand. Like the, the wars of Beleriand were to them just a distant rumor, I think is, is the way the line goes. And so, mm. which is kind of amazing for an immortal <laughs> being yeah. Uh, who's living on the same continent <laughs> to be, be basically blissfully unaware of the terrible, terrible wars that are happening mm. in the West. So, you know, you could, you could see around here being one of those Sylvan elves who's just kind of disconnected from those other wars. Wasn't a part of them. They were in a part of the world that didn't apply to him so much. Uh, you know, when, when Morgoth is finally defeated and Balerion goes under the water and seemingly the whole world changes, it's very possible that you will have plenty of folks out in the east who really don't have the slightest clue that that happened or might have a clue but have they have no idea who the good guy was who the bad guy was how that story shook out you know the way that these myths and tales travel through you know hundreds of miles before it gets to their ears in the east their perspective would be totally warped potentially um so sauron could be just he could have just been hanging out in the east hanging out with all those folks and uh you know manipulating them and they wouldn't know have any true historical reference to arm themselves with to perceive his lies. Yeah, and and think about it within the wider context of the Valar, right? I, I think the show is is not going to avoid talking about the fact that there are literal spiritual beings, you know, in in the world. I, I think they are going to talk about that. Um, and there's a there's a there's a passage from the Silmarillion, I think, quite early on, where it talks about men first awakening. And it says that Ulmo spoke to them through the waters, but they couldn't understand what he was saying. And, it, yeah, you know, this may right. be my hobby horse that the Valar are to blame for everything. But um, whether that's true or not, I think there's this idea. I'm with you that, there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there's this idea that, you know, in speaking to men but not letting them understand, you can draw a, <clears throat> pardon me, you can draw a straight line from the awakening of men who lived under the shadow of Morgoth to the fall of Numenor, where Sauron is able to go to Pharazon and say, listen, that, that, that it's lies. The Eldar have been telling you lies. It's all lies about what the Valar are. And, of course, you know, it's still bad what Pharazon does, but, well, no one's ever spoken to him, and all he's relying on is the immortal beings who've told him he can't sail west, and, you know, who've, who've told him that, you know, frankly, while they're very grateful for all you did in the first age, helping us defeat Morgoth, um, this is where you live now, and, and, and that's your gift. And obviously, it's it's all part of the, the king's men and Pharazon misunderstanding the gift of Iluvatar. I understand that, but I think there's this interesting through line that the show could explore, which is that, you know, the Eldar know the Valar are real, and they know that they try, though they may fail, to be good custodians of Arda. And um, men don't have that luxury, and it, it, I think you're quite right. I think it really is an open question how far the show wants to explore that idea. Yeah, boy, you just opened a can of worms, and uh, I'm going <laughs> to steer us in another direction because we could live in that rabbit hole for, for a lifetime. So 
I, I think it's a good time to transition because we've seen the sword. Theo has this sword of some kind. Now, we know from prior posters, on that sword, there is a rune. And that rune matches exactly a rune that we see uh, shown twice in this trailer. Uh, once in, I'm, I think, uh, on a rock in this you know, evil castle. And we'll talk about this castle and what we think that is. And another time here, this image that I'm showing on the screen, I don't know, I don't know where this is, but it appears out of ice. You know, the the character is looking. The shot is from behind, uh, so all you see is the back of someone's hair, and they're looking at a, a surface, and frost appears in the shape of this rune. Now, I want to ask your opinion, and I don't have a theory. I have no, I I can't place this rune. I don't know where it's from. I don't know what it means. I only have the mm. wildest guess. So I, I'm curious if you have some thoughts about what this rune means and how its appearance in that castle and on the sword might connect to anything. Yeah, I, I, I do have a theory. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually, I think this might be one we're overcomplicating slightly within the fandom and, and overanalyzing. All I did was I, I turned the image 90 degrees to the left or right. And to me, as soon as you do that, it looks like a very crude drawing of an eye. Now, What's the evidence against? Okay, well, according to the law, the eye only really becomes the symbol of Sauron post uh, his loss of the ring. So that would be... Or at least that's the first time we see it. Mm. Yeah, but you've got to think, why does he choose that? Because in the books, he isn't a literal floating eye as he is in the Jackson films, so we can't take that. But is it part of this all-seeing, all-present, this shapeshifter who sees everything? And who can look into the hearts of men and can look into the, you know, the troubled minds of the Eldar like Celebrimbor. So I, 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 think, I think we might be overcomplicating it, maybe. But my, the only other theory I have, and I think the evidence here is pretty weak, and I also don't know why the show would give this as a cue to viewers who have not read the Silmarillion and when you're not going to tell the story of the Silmarillion. I've heard people say it's the Iron Crown of Morgoth. Um, three prongs for the three similarals, the iron crown. I, I think that's a, I think that's a great idea. I think book readers are going to naturally go towards that. Um, and right. maybe they'll even say that that's kind of what Sauron first drew inspiration for his eye. You know, he looked at it, twisted it, mangled it, and came up with the eye. But no, I, I think we have to sometimes, you know, go. What's the What's the simplest explanation? I think they're trying to lay the groundwork for the iconography of, of Sauron, honestly. So I think, I guess to follow that theory, if it's a symbol that Sauron is using, maybe a, you know, a proto version of the eye, or this is just the version of the eye in this show, why is it appearing on the sword? And why does it appear in this evil lair? So, you mm. know, if, if, if you believe it's Sauron's icon, mm. that must connect him to to that item and that place. And so how yeah. would you explain those two things? So I think for the sword, I think we again have to go with the visual language here. Like what is the show giving us on a visual level? Ignore dialogue, ignore interviews, ignore everything else. What is the show giving us? They're giving us a sword that is very, uh, that is very similar to the Morgul blade we see in, in uh, fellowship of the ring in, in the Peter Jackson films. And, and I, th- and I think there's, a, there's an argument to be made there that the show is not going to try and confuse viewers on a visual level. They might do it on a character level, motivation level, but I, but I think you would be a very brave showrunner to say, or, and a writer and a director to say, 
let's also mislead our, 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 our viewers. You know, it would be like if the Balrog we see at the end of the trailer was not actually a Balrog. Everyone would go, well, you know, uh-huh. why did you why did you show me that? So uh, yeah, what yeah. ties it what ties it to this place? Firstly, I, I do agree. I think this is the fortress that or the icy cavern stronghold that Galadriel's exploring. I think actually if you brighten that image, it's blonde hair and she has the sword uh, hilt uh, coming over her right shoulder. So I think, okay. I think yep. it is her. I think... I think there's also a question of here of is the is this clip reversed like we said about the sword is the symbol appearing or is it disappearing when she look when she looks on it because if it's frosty why would it grow more frosty when she approaches if she's bringing a torch towards it that to me seems uh backwards in logic but i i honestly i couldn't tell you i think you know is this is this a remnant of a tumno is it just an unnamed stronghold from the first age we know it's not going to be you know um one of sauron's lairs which he takes from uh Orodreth, and then we have the whole scene with beren and luthien and finrod because that looks right. like an elvish Can't fortress so i think I, honestly i i think the showrunners are doing a bit of rule of cool here which i don't hate you know it looks uh-huh. cool it looks good it'll be good visual cues for the audience when the eye of sauron reappears uh, that I'm, I'm trying to keep it simple for once which i i rarely do yeah, I think that this is uh, we're gonna put this one in the mystery box uh, to be opened later. Um, you know, if I had to guess, my my working theory is that the symbol is some sort of symbol of Morgoth. You know, not pulled from any specific place in the text. It's something that they created. You know, maybe its precise meaning will will surprise us and it'll be cool. But I think it's probably some sort of symbol of Morgoth. I think the sword is some sort of relic related to Morgoth. Mm. I do think that this uh, icy castle of, of sorts is my guess is it is the the remains of autumno mm. um which autumno could be you know buried when it went down with beleriand um but other i've seen maps that that place it in the icy north and that there could be remnants in the forward wave mm. um and so i think that they're going to embrace that because it makes perfect sense galadriel she's chasing down the servants of morgoth she goes to the the remains of a tumno it, it it all fits and so if this is a tumno yeah you know we see here that it's spires and those to me look a bit like you know the, the design of the bottom of that sword oh you know so you could it, maybe you're really stretching it but that the bottom of that sword was designed to be patterned after the spires i like that idea i like that uh, idea a lot and you know sauron was a servant of morgoth the cults that he created cult of morgoth so it stands to reason that he would be not identifying himself as a god yet, perhaps. Mm. Uh, but, you know, to make himself more believable, he's representing himself as an agent of the great Dark Lord. That's what the, the approach he uses um, in Numenor. And so he could be using that technique also among the men in the East, you know, because if we pretend that this is still early-ish and he hasn't fully arisen, he's still going to be using Morgoth symbols. Now, what the sword is, I think it is a completely made-up relic. Maybe it's Morgoth's sword. It seems a little small for it to be Morgoth's sword. I don't know. Uh, but uh, clearly it has some malevolent power. You know, it is... I, I think it is a Morgul blade in the sense that Morgul just means uh, necromancy, you know, dark sorcery. Mm. So it's a it's a mm. blade made by uh, of dark sorcery. It's not a Morgul blade in the sense that it's, you know, from Minas Morgul because that didn't exist until the Third Age. Yeah. But um, it, it clearly is uh, echoing whatever power created the, the blade in Minas Morgul there's some relationship to the power that created this. Blade. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I think there's also a question of 
is this very smart advertising where they focus us on objects and symbols and all these things, whereas actually, you know, the story is going to be driven by dialogue and plot and narrative and, and all, all those things we expect from uh, long-form television. So, I mean, I, I do think it's interesting to, dis- to dissect, but I also wonder that, you know, for example, with that fortress, even if we, the viewers, are meant to, you know, book readers especially are meant to go, oh, that's probably the remnants of Tumno, I don't think they're going to say the name. So it, it's kind of, it's kind of one of those things yeah. where I think, you know, oh, well, you know, we could theorize to the cows come home, but at the end of the day, we'll probably never get a name in the show anyway. Are you ready to move on to the dwarves? Yes, yes. Because I have a little pet love for the dwarves. You know, they don't get the love that they deserve, so I give them as much as I can. And, you know, we get some good stuff. The design of the dwarves has been knocked out from the beginning. Everything that I've seen, I have loved. And we get some really interesting stuff about the dwarves in this trailer. In addition to the lines we get from Durin the Third, I want to jump straight to a scene where there's a leaf that looks like a leaf from Linden. It's floating down a cavern, and as it descends, you can see in the rock that it's floating by veins of Mithril. So I think we can place this scene in Khazad-dûm. And it makes sense that the leaf would be a leaf from Eregion. You know, Celebrimbor visits, Eregion is close to Khazad-dûm, so somehow the leaf gets in there and it floats down. And it seems to go up in flame. And if you pause the video, you can see shadow and smoke already there. So I think the leaf is lighting on fire due to whatever presence, smoky, fiery presence, is already there. Now it is very obscured, but my theory is that it is catching fire because there is a balrog. Mm-hmm. Now the implication from the way they edit the scenes is that the Morgoth occultist is blowing <laughs> fire and somehow awakening the Balrog with their magic. Now, I I don't think that's what's actually happening. I think that's misdirection, 100%. I do think that there's a Balrog down in Moria, which we see, of course, at the end of the trailer, and I do think that that is Durin's Bane. The images match the design of the Balrog in Moria from the Fellowship of the Ring almost exactly. The horns in this Balrog are a little more curved, but it's close enough that I think that we can safely say it is Durin's Bane. And we get a really good line from Durin the Third, who says, Beyond the darkness, tempting shadow, to bury us all beneath the mountain. So I think that Durin the Third has some premonition, some sense of the danger that awaits them in the deeps of Khazad-dûm. And then you've got Durin the Fourth, who we see in this trailer holding up a big mithril nugget. And we know from the last trailer, he makes a comment that this is mm. the, a new beginning. So you put all that together, and I think in the Second Age, the story for the dwarves, they're going to discover Mithril. Durin the Fourth is mm. going to be super psyched about it. He's like, hey, Dad, we're going to be filthy rich. This is going to be the start of a new era. Celebrimbor, of course, is also psyched, and he's fueling that fire uh, because he wants to use Mithril for his own ends. And so Durin the Fourth is digging and digging and digging deep, and Durin the Third is maybe a little more cautious, mm. and he's telling his son, hey, I think you're digging too deep. There's a danger down there that you don't appreciate. Now, I certainly don't think we're going to actually see them awaken the Balrog. Certainly not this season. At least it wouldn't make any sense timeline-wise. The Balrog is not supposed to awaken and wreak havoc on Khazad-dûm until the Third Age, so it would be far too early uh, in the Second Age, and especially in the first season. Khazad-dûm is supposed to be an impervious fortress. It's a, a place where the dwarves are able to retreat. They close their doors, and Sauron can't assault them. So they're protected for all the Second Age in, in Khazad-dûm. So I don't think that we're going to see the Balrog awaken fully but maybe at the end of the show maybe they'll push up the timeline a little bit so it'll be 
just before the end of the Third Age. So that's my working theory, but you tell me if I'm all wet on that. I think you are probably 70% right, and, and, and here's where I might differ on a few things. I, I think during the Third, as in his father, might be warning him about that, but it might be also him discouraging during the Fourth uh, from allying with the elves and it, he's actually saying that they're testing the shadow they're pushing the shadow they're the ones uh, because we know that Celebrimbor is sending Elrond to try and strike a deal or something we're not quite sure what with the dwarves and I think Durin the fourth as we see him at a dinner table with Celebrimbor and the other elves in Linden I think he's I think he's for it but I wonder whether his father isn't but I agree that the the sentence definitely has double meanings the thing that I think is really interesting is that I think we know exactly which leaf that is. And that might sound insane when I first say that. Yeah. But follow, follow, follow me here, listeners. Follow me down my rabbit hole. In, in the Empire magazine pictures, there is a still of Durin the Fourth and Deesa sitting down. And in his hand, he's holding a leaf. And I think that when he goes to visit Lindon and has dinner, they give it to him as a symbol of friendship. You know, here is one of the, the trees, whether it's a mallow tree or not. I mean, obviously not in Lindon, but whatever. They give him this leaf. He brings it back. I think he then presents it to his father and says, look at this symbol of friendship. Look at what the elves are doing to reach out to us. And I literally think the way the scene works is his father says no, tells him off. And he throws the leaf off. You see that scene where he's sitting on his throne. It's looking over a ledge. I think he throws the leaf down into the cavern. And I think we follow the leaf all the way down, all the way down until it's pitch black. And as you say, it burns up. But not because it's going to wake it up, but just because there's that latent heat. So I think there's this direct connection between his father being right about the warning, but inadvertently kind of almost it's the first snowflake that starts the avalanche and so i think there's just some really interesting visual imagery as for where the the balrog that comes post the amazon prime logo i have two theories about that even if it is doran's bane fine i I don't think it is but 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 if it is i think it's one of two things i think it's either from that scene with finrod in the battle where there's flame and it's the balrog pouring out of the darkness and then lighting up or I think what it more likely might be is that Galadriel is going to see a bunch of visions in the Palantir, and I think one of them might even be this Balrog coming out of the shadow. I don't think I I, I don't think what we're seeing is a Balrog awakening in the chronological timeline of show season one. But why would they have that image in the trailer? I think because it's either a flashback or flash forward. But what do you think of my leaf theory? I'm interested to. Oh, I love it. I think it's a great theory. I'm I'm sold 100%. And, you know, I think the most effective storytelling is efficient Mm. storytelling. So you don't want to let any image or symbol or item go to waste, no wasted screen time. So if they're going to spend some time watching a leaf float down a chasm, and I love the idea of it being Mm. some sort of a symbol of the relationship between the elves and the dwarves, because that makes it that much more significant when it lights on fire. I, I also want to add to something you said. I think it would be really interesting if Doran the Fourth starts off saying, no, we shouldn't mind the Mithril, we're going to, you know, we're going to do something bad here. But then once he gets the Ring of Power from Sauron or Celebrimbor, I think 
in the Unfinished Tales, we find out that the first ring of the dwarves gets sent by Celebrimbor. And I wonder whether, because we know that what the rings did to the dwarves was make them more insular, dig deeper, focus on their riches. So I wonder whether that's what we're seeing. During the third at the start of the season, he doesn't, he's not interested, he doesn't want it. Kazadoom's booming it, it's fine. He gets the ring and we get that kind of, you know, the, the things we see in The Hobbit, where, you know, the idea of dragon sickness and of this hoarding of wealth and obsession. So, I don't know, I, I think we might be seeing even Durin's father go on a journey. And I would like that if that is indeed the case. We have heard rumors that in the first season, early in the first season, in fact, there is a big mind collapse. The implication being that Durin the Third dies in that mind collapse. We've also seen a still image of Durin the Fourth walking out of some big doors. He's looking very grim. He's looking very dirty. And I'm sort of speculating, pure speculation here, but that he's walking out of the room immediately after his father's died. Uh, his father gets caught in a mind collapse. Durin the Fourth helps save him, bring him up to the room. That's why Durin the Fourth is all dirty. Uh, uh, but then Durin the Third just died, and so mm. he's walking out looking very grim. And I, and I know, yeah, I know Fellowship has been pretty good with their rumors, but you know, every one in ten they might get wrong. My only problem with that whole rumor of a scene is what is the king doing down the mine? I just, I, I, I don't see that. It makes no sense to me why the king, he looks quite old as well. What's he doing down the mine? It, ju- it, it just doesn't ring true to me. I, th- I think people will die. I think dwarves will die. And I think that scene we see in this trailer where Deesa's singing and they're holding the flames, I think that's the funeral lament we've heard about. But I, 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 I'm not going to believe it until I see it. I think Durin Third makes it out of the season until he gets a ring. That's what I think. And I would like that. I would like that. You know, it would be more consistent with the lore. In the books, Durin the Third is the one who gets the ring. Now, due to time compression, I had sort of resigned myself to the idea that we weren't going to see Durin the Third play the same role that he plays in the lore, because they made Durin the Fourth his son in the show, and we know that in reality they're several generations removed. So I thought maybe they're just going to, you know, we'll see Durin the Third very briefly, and then they'll consolidate the roles that Durin the Third and Durin the Fourth play into one character, that being Durin the Fourth. So he would receive the rings, and he would be the Durin that leads the dwarves in the War of the Last Alliance. But if your theory is correct, then we may actually get to see Durin the Third and Durin the Fourth play the roles they were meant to play, which would be very nice. Now you're starting to get us into the scene with Galadriel, Muriel, and the Palantir. Now I should mention that even though I mentioned the opening shot of Galadriel with the Mound of Helmets as the one that was burned most into my retinas, this Palantir shot was a close second, because I hate to admit it, but I kind of forgot about the Palantir. I, I hadn't been spending much time theorizing or thinking about what they were doing, and so this was a stark reminder, and I'm really curious about what their role will be, because it really opens up a lot of storytelling opportunities, because now all kinds of visions and scenes could potentially be flashbacks. They could be images in the Palantir, and they could tell the story in such a way that they don't make it clear to the viewer what is an image from the Palantir and what isn't and what is reality, leaving it to be discovered later or made clear later. Yeah, I think I think it's super interesting. And I was actually listening to uh, an interview with Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor um, from Comic-Con. I think it was on Nerd of the Rings' YouTube channel. And he brought this up and he said what's interesting is that one of the reasons why no one thinks about this is because Tolkien hadn't really thought of it yet. It was one of his later writings where he established that, okay, well, where did the Palantir come from? Okay, well, Feanor made them. 
and then they were a gift from the elves of uh, Tolaresia to the Numenorians. And we know that several of them end up in Middle Earth, and 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 that then plays into the Third Age. But you know, if we're going to talk about the downfall of Numenor, if we're going to talk about them reaching beyond their their you know their their race's destiny and the gift of Iluvatar, um, of course they're going to use these Sing Stones, and maybe that's part of what. When Miriel goes to Middle Earth, maybe Farazon starts looking into the Palantir. Maybe that's what we see. Maybe he's going to start off the series as maybe a bit more morally positive. So, and then he starts looking into it, and it's going to bring out the worst in him. Oh, I like that idea. It sort of echoes Denethor's use of the Palantir or misuse of the Palantir in the Lord of the Rings. And maybe, like Denethor, we'll see a version of Air Farazon that is more noble in the beginning. Now, there is one thing that I noticed that I haven't heard anybody else talk about yet, and so maybe this is my my one thing that I'm catching, but when she places her hand on the Palantir, you know, we see cracking in the Palantir. Now, I don't know if that's just a visual cue, the same way in the Jackson films, when the Palantir was being used, there was a sort of smoky, swirling visual effect. Maybe uh, in the show, they're just choosing to do something a little bit different, and it's sort of an icy cracking type of effect. Or... Maybe we are getting a glimpse into Galadriel's future, and she is seeing some vision that draws her to the icy location that we see her in several other scenes. We see her going to this castle. We see her uh, going with her troops uh, through the snow. So maybe she sees a vision in the Palantir that gives her motivation to go on that trek. Mm. But in any case, once the cracking is done, there's a very quick flash of a scene that you see before it gets to the battle sequence that she gets a vision of and it's a single frame it's extremely fast i don't think you you certainly can't see her location or where she is but you do see galadriel standing in a green dress Mm. so that's the only thing you see that's the only thing we know Uh, and i guess it's because i can't know what it is that that's the only thing I do want to know. I want to find out yeah. what this scene is about. So you're very eagle-eyed, so I was hoping that you might have a theory. I do have a theory, but I think it's not that interesting. Um, I thought the dress was blue, and now I feel like we're in one of these, you know, the internet of 2016 when we used to say, is the dress blue or yellow? We're doing this now with Galadriel's dress. <laughs> um, but... If the dress is blue, I think it might be the one she's wearing in the scene with Muriel, and I wonder whether the way they're going to show these flashbacks, which I think would be a bold move and would probably upset a lot of people if they do this, but it's what I think they might do, is what if the way they show it to us is that Galadriel is physically, or a physical representation of her is there? So almost like uh, if you've seen Stranger Things when Eleven goes into the Upside Down, she herself, there is a physical representation of herself in this mental plane, this, you know, uh, this spiritual plane or whatever you'd want to call it. And so I wonder whether this is, we dive into the Palantir and the first thing we see is Galadriel and we think, oh, that's weird. Why are we seeing a vision of just her? But then we realize it's her and she realizes she's out of place and she looks around. And that's when we realize that the experience of looking into a Palantir is not just like, you know, watching a TV it's like getting pulled out of your body and, and and being on the most insane acid trip of your life, to put it in crude terms. Um, so that's my one theory. Yeah, but I th- I'm just imagining Galadriel as the big Lebowski exactly. floating down the bowling alley. Yeah. I, th- I, I, th- I think, though, 
I could be wrong because the shoulder on the dress looks different to the one she's wearing with Elendil and Miriel. Um, my only other guess is because she's looking suspiciously over her shoulder. I almost wonder if this is the first time she sees Anatar in fair form. And that might then explain why when Anatar arrives, despite looking fair, despite claiming to be an emissary of the Valar, because she's looked into the plant here and she saw this, she thinks, hmm, I don't know what's wrong with this guy, but something's wrong. And so that's my wildest theory. But honestly, I have no idea. Your guess is as good as mine. So the only thing I would put my money on is that this is a scene that will pay off in a future season. Yes. Peter McKay have said that because they have a five-season commitment from Amazon, they're able to do things with the plot and the narrative that they wouldn't be able to do if they were trying to survive season to season. They're able to Mm. plant nuggets and seeds for storylines and threads that won't pay off until the next season or the end of the entire series. Yeah. And I would bet that that's what this is. It's just one tiny frame, the full meaning of which we won't fully appreciate until the end of the series. It's interesting. The more I look at this image, there's something white and rectangular over her back or right shoulder, if you look at the image, just to the right of where her hair is. It almost... I have no idea what what this could be. Like you say, I think you could be right. It could pay off in future seasons. But I'm trying to think, what are the dramatic moments in Galadriel's life in the Second Age? Um, I mean, Tolkien doesn't give us many. So that leaves us a bit clueless, but I th- I think, you know, this could be, I, that's why I go to the Anatar thing. I think, what is a dramatic moment in Galadriel's life where she comes to a pivotal decision that having the gift of foresight or having used the planteer would be useful? Uh, it's, it's a very flimsy theory, but that's the best I have. Yeah, we're quickly getting into nonsense territory, <laughs> but that's a fun place to be. So as long as we're talking about Galadriel and Muriel, the scene where they are chatting around the Palantir, it really surprised me. It's one of the scenes that may have changed my interpretation of prior scenes we've mm. seen in other trailers. Now, we've been led to believe that Galadriel is one of the voices in the Elvish community that is saying, no, it's not peacetime. There is still an evil out there. Now, before this trailer, mm. I thought that she was starting out that way. Everyone else was happy while she was not. Now I'm thinking that maybe she was more or less one of the crew. She was ready or wanting to accept that it was peacetime. Maybe there's still some foreboding deep in her guts, some some suspicions, but she is going along with everybody else. You know, we see the scene of Gilgalad putting crowns on everyone's head, that sort of ceremony. We see her on the ship. It looks like maybe she's going back to Valinor. Uh, so she is at least accepting, and who knows, maybe she doesn't fully believe it, but she is accepting the opinions of the community that the dangerous time is over. So she's not insisting at the, at the outset that they go and hunt down evil. Instead, mm. she is on the ship trying to go back to Valinor with everybody else. But then she gets shipwrecked by that big fish. Who knows? Maybe that's uh, an agent of Ose, you know, who uh, Ose is always one of the you know most rambunctious of the Maiar. Um, <laughs> shipwrecks her. And then she gets picked up by the Numenorians, mm. brought back to Numenor, and has uh, some conversations with Muriel, and it's Muriel that drops the knowledge on her. It's Muriel that tells Galadriel there is a danger out there, and then shows her in the Palantir. And so we get this great line from Muriel. Mm. It is here, Galadriel, the moment we've feared. And Galadriel looks surprised. She's hearing this for the first time. So I think Muriel has been using the Palantir 
I think that she's been seeing things that others haven't, so she has more knowledge of some impending danger, and she shares that with Galadriel. Uh, now, this is just a working theory. I'm not 100% sold on this, but uh, the trailer has certainly mm. caused me to rethink what I thought I knew about Muriel and Galadriel and their roles at the start of the show. Whereas previously, we thought that Galadriel was starting out mm. on a mission to go to Numenor to ask for aid. Now I think there's a chance that she arrives there completely by accident, learns this new information from Muriel, mm. and then asks the Numenorians for aid. Yeah, I, I think this, this scene has definitely changed a lot of people's ideas for what the chronology could be. It, it hasn't for me, and I'll explain why. I think everything we've heard about Galadriel's character is about this idea that she is still battling with this idea that evil cannot be gone. And it's it's something I want to write about in longer form someday, hopefully I'll get around to it, is this idea that Galadriel is dealing with grief and trauma and probably even post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I think it would be really narratively weak if the reason she goes from optimistic to pessimistic is the Palantir. I think it works, but I think it is not strong character writing, so I hope they don't do it. I do agree with you that I don't think she goes to Numenor on purpose. I think that scene we've seen on her in the boat is her um, going to Valinor. I don't think she wants to. I think Gilgalad sends her, and I think Elrond convinces her. We've seen that conversation where he's talking to her. I think he's trying to protect her as well. By the way, I think everyone's misreading that scene. It is not Galadriel talking down to Elrond. It is each of them trying to protect the other. Elrond has lost his whole family, and he thinks if Galadriel keeps fighting, she's going to die too. And he doesn't want that. He's lost everyone. And Galadriel thinks, the last time we got lazy and complacent about evil, I lost all my family. And I think it is two people dealing with grief and trauma and responding their own way. And I think people are just reading that scene in a very simplistic kind of high school drama way i think it is i think it is very philosophical conversation they're having but my other point i would make is that we a couple of people on lord of the rings twitter actually came up with some really interesting information one of which is that in one of tolkien's letters he says the ban on the on the noldor was not actually uh, was not actually totally lifted after the war of wrath those who were involved in the in the actual exile, the leaders, which Galadriel was one of them, she had her different reasons, but she was one of the leaders, they still had work to do. And I think if we play into the metaphysics of, of Middle-earth, her when she says in The Lord of the Rings, I have passed my test, I shall now go and diminish into the West, this may now have more power if she does try to return to Valinor and she's rejected and they send a storm and they wreck her. And actually, she's being sent back, you know, in that way that Eru often does, you know, by my own hand, she'll be turned to good. Um, I think what we're seeing there is that her test is yet to come, and it's Sauron. And so, I, yeah, I, again, sorry, I've gone on a little bit there, but I think my point is that while that would make sense for the Palantir to be the reason she changed her mind, I think it's so much stronger character writing for this to be a journey about her her journey with grief, her journey with loss, and also her faith in the Valar and Eru and the whole blessing of the Eldar. So that that's where I go on it. But I do think it's an interesting question about what is the chronology of events now. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that for her journey to be a strong one narratively, needs she always needs to be driven by and the plot needs to be inquiring into 
her grief and how that's affecting her and uh, how that's informing her decisions and the way she's experiencing things going forward. And it would sort of cheat us of that if instead they took the simpler route and had her start in one place emotionally, and then she encounters Muriel, who just gives her some new information, and then based on that new information, she does a 180-degree a turn and says, oh, now I need to help. So it's, it's just based on sort of the du ex machina of Muriel giving her information and not based in any way on mm-hmm. her own past and her own motivations. So I, I think that would be far less fulfilling. And I think you're right that yeah. they will uh, focus on her grief a lot more. I do, I do have a question for you, though. There's something really interesting about the way Muriel says that line. She says something along the lines of, the moment we feared has come. It is here, Galadriel, the moment we've feared. Yes, exactly. Now, that line implies that they've been communicating because she says, the moment we've feared. Yeah. Which also would undermine my theory that Galadriel is learning the news for the first time because clearly this is something that she has already been fearing. But also, it sits really strangely with me, the idea that Galadriel and Miriel already know each other. Like, that feels really weird to me. I hope that's not where they're going. I imagine where they're going that, you know, we are two wise leaders and we both think the shadow hasn't fully gone i think it would be so strange if they were like oh you know they're besties and they text all the time and actually <laughs> this is just something they've been discussing for a while i, w- I read so i hope that's not where they're going yeah and the context of the quote could be different in the actual show mm-hmm. so for example galadriel could have just finished telling muriel about the concerns of the numenorean leadership at large so the we mm-hmm. that she is referring to in that situation would be the numenorean leadership so the word weave doesn't necessarily yeah. have to be inclusive of Galadriel for it to make sense. It would just depend on the context of the full scene. And yeah, I would agree with you that I would prefer that to be the case because people are already bent out of shape because Galadriel is going to Numenor, which some people feel is lore-breaking. And so if they bend things further to suggest that Miriel and Galadriel mm. have been in a constant correspondence, you know, sending each other telegrams, and maybe there's a, an elven ship going back and forth like the Postal Service... I think that would tweak a lot of people. And, and, you know, I think it would be a lot more interesting narratively for the Numenorians to be somewhat sundered from the elves of Middle-earth. Not that they're completely cut off. Uh, You know, we know that, especially in later years, Numenorians are traveling to Middle-earth quite frequently. As oppressors, they have a lot of uh, settlements Mm. that have been there for years. We know that as far back as King Eldarion, their, uh, you know, King Eldarion would travel to meet with Círdan's shipwright, who would help teach him how to build ships and improve their shipbuilding. So there's been a lot of back and forth between the Numenorians and the peoples of Middle-earth over the years. But in these later years, because they're falling away from the elves and we have the Kingsmen influence, I, I would want there to be some sort of cultural and communication divide. Yeah, and, and, and I do think as well, based on that picture we saw from Entertainment Weekly of uh, Galadriel and Elendil in some kind of library talking and there is the star of Erendil on the wall and there's a sword could it be, you know, Narsil? who knows, but I think the really interesting thing and the thing I've theorised is that I wonder whether Galadriel asks Muriel to come and fight with her and at first she says no because the political position is fraught maybe she already recognises that Farazon's trying to move in on her, maybe it's the issue with the faithful and the kingsmen, who knows and, and elvish resentment is probably already high um, due to the compressed timeline. So I wonder whether she first goes to, or maybe Elendil gets her and says, listen, Miriel can't help you. Listen, this is the situation. And 
and Galadriel calls on their mutual history, hence the star of Erendil in the background, hence the fact that we'll probably hear the story of the Ring of Barra here. I'm convinced that's why we get that scene of Finrod in battle, so that he can be saved by Barra here. And then we know why does this ring come to Elendil. So I wonder whether that happens. Then she goes back to Miriel. Then Miriel shows her the Palantir. And then that's when we get the line from later in the trailer where Galadriel says to someone we don't know who, fight with me. And I think she's saying that to Miriel. I think that's the moment where she's convincing her, you need to come. Numenor will be fine, but come with me and help fight because otherwise the shadow is going to run over everything. That's my theory anyway. And to speak in more general terms, I'm so glad that even though this trailer gives us a lot of new information, I still really don't know Mm. what's going to happen. I'm not spoiled at all. And, you know, the scuttlebutt is that we're not going to get another trailer. This is it. So I I was afraid after we got this trailer that we were going to get another one that was going to give us even more information and that I would be spoiled. uh, And that, you know, by the end of it, by the time the show has started, I've seen six trailers and that spoiled (laughs) the entire series. And uh, I won't enjoy the actual show as much. But Mm. I don't think that's the case because this is the last trailer we are going to see. And I think we can both agree that there are a lot of questions that we are not going to get answers to, not only before the show, but even after the first season has completed. There are going to be a lot of unanswered questions, and so uh, that is a very exciting prospect to me. I I like to be in the dark. Maybe I'm a a masochist, but I think (laughs) I like the prospect of being teased indefinitely. Yeah. I think think as well something I was thinking about the other day, and... um... Even including this trailer, we've probably had seven minutes of footage, right? Probably less when you take away titles and things like that. Then think about how much unique footage we've seen between those four trailers. Yeah, a lot of redundancies. Yeah, I think maybe three and a half, maybe four minutes. Now, we know that they're probably aiming for around ten hours for the first season with two very long first episodes, um, eight episodes total. So I just think about that and I think I've seen four minutes of a 10-hour first season. So when I'm sitting there going, hang on, why is Galadriel on a boat in Numenor and she's wearing Noldor in armor and she's got a sword? And then I'm like, well, hang on, there's eight episodes. Maybe she doesn't just go to Numenor once. Maybe she goes back and forth. Who knows? I mean, you know, all these things, I've, I've, I've suddenly realized after the last trailer, you know, how can we ever try and guess the overarching plot lines in 10 hours of television based on four minutes of footage based on interviews based on pictures that's absolutely right and i'm so glad you reminded me of that point you know we've been talking about galadriel and numenor as though all those scenes are from her first visit after she's shipwrecked and i think that's almost certainly not Mm. the case you know she was traveling on that boat basically in her skivvies she had a nightgown on so she wasn't wearing her armor (laughs) so unless she had a nice big suitcase down in the hull of the boat carrying her armor I don't think she had her armor with her, Mm. but we do get a shot in this trailer of her wearing armor in Numenor. Yes. So I think there has to be another trip. And also, not only does she have her armor, not only does she have her sword, she has Finrod's dagger again. If you look at her hip in that scene where she steps onto the boat and then grips Halbrand's arm, well, I think that's Halbrand anyway, um, she's got Finrod's dagger on her hip. Now, A, I don't think there's any way she's taking that on the boat to Valinor. That seems a really weird thing to bring back. Like, hi, brother, I haven't seen you in a millennia. Um, here's your dagger I put on your tomb, you know. There you go. <laughs> Welcome back. That's not happening. But also, it, 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 it really begs the question to me of, and I know we're now going way back in the trailer, 
does she visit Finrod's tomb in the show? Or does she, in that scene where we see his body and he's holding it, does she go, actually, we're not going to bury you with this? Because we know from the books that he isn't, you know, he's he's not buried in a tomb, so that's strange to me. And I'm pretty sure where he is buried is then sunk during Balerion's kind of crash into the sea. So there's so many questions I have, which I love. But when people say, oh, I, you know, I think we already know what's going to happen in the season. I just think, you know, ye of little faith, ye of little faith in the power of marketing and trailers. And people say Amazon's marketing is bad. And I, I would say to that, I think it's been frustrating, but frustrating is not always bad. Sometimes it is very smart. All right. The last thing I want to mention is, and uh, there's a lot, there's so much in this trailer uh, that we're not going to yes. get to. We could stay here all night, but we're not going to do that. We're just hitting the highlights. We got a nice shot of Nimloth. Nimloth being oh. a really important tree in the capital city of Numenor, Armenelos. We see it shedding its flower petals. Cut to Muriel in the street. The petals are falling around her. This is a shot from the prior trailer where she's looking up over her shoulder, looking concerned. So we were talking about things that maybe changed our interpretation of scenes we've seen before. I had previously thought that the shot of Muriel in the street, flower petals falling around her, was some sort of scene from maybe a military parade, and the look of concern on her face was concern over the pending military action, or over Erfarazone's encroachment on her authority, or something of that nature. But we also know from the text that in the later years of Numenor, a sign of their downfall was that the kings stopped tending to Nimloth, and it actually starts to die. And in fact, it's one of the most heroic deeds of Isildur's life that he rescues a sapling of the tree and that's what makes its way over to middle earth and ends up being the tree in the court of gondor and it continues to be a symbol of the strength or decay of the gondorian empire for years and years to come mm. all the way through the third age and in fact all the way into the fourth age it was a symbol of the renewal of the united kingdoms of gondor and arnor when aragorn found the sapling that was a descendant of nimloth on the slopes and brought it back uh, and that blossomed and everyone was happy So we finally see a shot of this really important plant, and uh, it's shedding its petals. Now, it could be the case that it's entirely within the nature of this tree to routinely shed its petals and grow new petals, and and that it really has no metaphorical meaning whatsoever. But I think there's an implication here that the fact that the petals are falling Mm. off a tree is indicative of something bad happening, that in fact the tree is starting to decay and die just as Numenor is starting to decay and will eventually die. And then you've got Muriel, who I think is being set up to be very attuned to where Numenor is sort of spiritually and that she has a sense of foreboding about what's going on here. And, of course, we get that shot of her looking up with concern at the flower petals falling. So I think that she sees the petals falling and understands what it means, understands that this is playing into a feeling that she's been having for a long time. So that's my current theory. I could be all wrong, of course. It could just be a pretty tree. But my hunch is that it's something more. I I think you're... I almost have nothing to add. I think you're 100% correct. I think it's clear visual language. I think it's referencing the, the, the text. I think it's referencing the Jackson films. I think it's doing all these things. What I think is most interesting about the shot of Nimloth, and I was put on to this, um, or I had a discussion about this with my friend uh, Irene on on, uh, on Twitter, and I'll link his handle when I tweet out the, the show, but he pointed out to me, if you look at the buildings around the tree, the archways, they're crumbling at the top. 
Not only that, they are a different kind of stone, and they are a different architectural style, and we know from the showrunners that Numenor's sets are planned and carefully designed to reflect its history. Now, in the shot earlier in the trailer, we see the big, what I assume is the palace, the throne room, big dome, tall towers, very kind of almost Byzantine architecture, I feel like, although I'm no expert. I feel like the arches around Nimloth is maybe built by the elves of Toloresia or was a gift from whoever. And I think the fact that it's crumbled, that it has been left to decay, that there are vines growing up it, that is really smart. And I have to commend both the set designers, the directors, the writers, whoever came up with that idea to say, not only is this tree falling apart, but what is it? what are the leaves falling through? They are falling through the ruins of a Numenor that appreciated the Eldar, that appreciated the Valar, and so we get, like you say, the sense that Numenor is in decay, but we also get the sense of why is it in decay? Because it is turning away from the the line of the Adain and the friendship of elves to the self-interest, to the internal-focused, internal-looking men who build tombs greater than themselves. Um, I think it's a really clever visual cue. Now, I could be wrong, but I think it's I think it's too clear for me to think otherwise. Wow, that is a really cool find. I, I did notice the vegetation and the moss growing on the stones, which kind of indicates some of that, but mm. I definitely did not notice the different stonework and the different architecture, mm. and that certainly does a lot of work in in creating a visual cue and creating history, mm. uh, visually telling a story about the decline of Numenor. That is so cool. Um, so I'm glad they're doing that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really clever storytelling. And I think also... There's there's a question in my mind of the show's try to tell a really complex story, right? The show is trying to tell one of Tolkien's stories that he basically never finished. He wrote the historical record, not the narrative. So if you're a showrunner and you don't have that, dialogue can only go far. And this is why I think people saying, oh, well, you know, the show looks very pretty, but what's the story? I'm the opposite. I say a show that can tell you something without any dialogue is 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 worth it, you know, it's a picture worth a thousand words, to put it simply. Yeah. Now, I like filmmakers like Kevin Smith and Aaron Sorkin. You know, these are filmmakers whose films focus on dialogue. That is the core of the film, the witty banter, the back and forth. These guys, if they had their druthers, they would shoot an entire film, just two people in a coffee shop having a conversation. Uh, I heard a little, to digress a little bit, I heard a funny story by Kevin Smith, where you know people would always ask him, why don't you do a Batman movie or a comic book movie? Because he's a huge comic book nerd, loves Batman, and he'd actually been approached a few times about doing a comic book adaptation. And he would just kind of say, you know what, I, I love this stuff, but I don't know that I'm the right guy for this genre. Because his instinct, his style is, you know, he, if he gets Batman, he's going to end up putting Batman behind a rock mm. with Robin for 20 minutes having a discussion in the middle of a fight. <laughs> you know, he, he's not... Uh, a visual filmmaker. Now, while I can appreciate these hyper-verbal styles of movie making, I think the best use of the cinematic medium is to take yep. full advantage of all the visual tools in your tool belt. The purest film is one that can tell the entire story visually without any dialogue. Mm. You know, as a starting point, no dialogue. How are the visuals telling the story? And then you bring the dialogue back in. If it adds something, if it's appropriate, you know, so your instinct should not be to start with like a radio drama where it's all verbal and no visuals. It should be a visual style with the dialogue added in deliberately, poetically, and with great care. 
And from what I'm seeing so far, I think that may be what we're getting. Meticulously crafted sets and visual elements layered with meticulously crafted dialogue using meter and language. I, I am excited about the approach they're taking so far. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think it shows in their choice of directors as well. J.A. Biona, people think of him um, now for Jurassic World. Or older fans may think of him in terms of uh, El Orfanto, the horror film. And I do think we've seen in this trailer, they're going to channel horror, absolutely. Um, but also his films, A Monster Calls and The Impossible, are very heavy on visual language. Not light on dialogue, but the dialogue is purposeful and... I think we're going to see that he didn't just have a hand in his episodes, but the visual language of the of the whole show, which I'm really excited for because I think he's an incredibly talented director. Well, is there anything else from this trailer that we haven't covered that you've been dying to talk about? Oh, other, I mean, don't, don't say that to me because <laughs> otherwise... Yeah, I, so I think where I would go back to is what was this trailer trying to do right? We've had previous trailers showing us our heroes, our landscapes, our beauty and grace. This trailer was trying to show stakes and villains and tension and all those things we talked about at the start. And I think it's I think it's very effective in doing that. But what I would say to people is, while the show and, you know, even Tolkien's book was called The Lord of the Rings, none of his stories are about the villain. And I think it would be a huge mistake for people to go into this show as any adaptation of his work and think it's about the villain. It is, it, it, it is not. It will not be. This this trailer is there for a purpose. But I fundamentally go back to what the showrunners have said, what the actors have said, what everyone involved with the show has said. This This trailer might tell you one thing, but the show is about, A, people coming together to fight common evil, but more importantly people's individual journeys with issues of mortality, faith, love, family, grief, loss, you know. I think when we look back after five seasons, despite the show starting with uh, Galadriel being the main character, at least that's the way they're portraying it, I know it's an ensemble cast, I think the two characters that this show will most be about will be about Elrond and Isildur. I think it's about Elrond, the orphan, the one who lost everything, the only half-elf left in Middle-earth, finding family, finding purpose, finding love in the end, hopefully with, hopefully with Celebrium. Uh, and I think for Isildur, it's about that other quote we've heard to describe the trailer, how far into darkness would you go to protect you know, the ones you love and to, and, to, and to serve the light? And I think that is really the story of the show. And um, I guess I'll just end by saying that I think, you know... Uh, I think the show is going to be wonderful. I'm biased. I run a Twitter account about the show, but it's circular logic because I run a Twitter account about the show because I'm so excited for it. And I, the last thing I'll say is I saw the last trailer when I went to the cinema. It was running as a pre-roll ad before a film I went to see. And the, the you know, I think people are sometimes talking bad faith, but the people on the internet who say this show looks cheap or televisual or, you know, not where's the budget gone? Let me tell you, you might be watching this on your phone or on your laptop. Go watch it in an IMAX theatre and tell me that doesn't look as good, if not better, than a lot of blockbusters. A lot of the Marvel churn, which I, I love for their own reasons, but a lot of modern blockbusters do not look as good as this show. And I will hang my hat on that statement for the next five years. 
Yeah, I am really hoping I get the opportunity to see some of the show in theaters and to hear Bear McCreary's score in Dolby Surround Sound. Oh. We haven't gotten a chance to talk about that. We will someday, but to hear that... Another day. I want it. I really want it. Well, Harry, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure coming on the show. As I said to you before we started recording, I'm a massive fan of you guys. I love your show. I think you provide the great mix of comedy, speculation, um, and passion. And uh, the only thing I'll add is that do check out my Twitter account for theories and speculation, Silmarillion quotes and pictures from the show. Uh, Also be prepared for the fact that I am going to talk about Celebrimbor a lot and that I'm maybe in love with Charles Edwards' portrayal of him. And I do like making memes about Celebrimbor, and I apologize in advance, but come for the rest, endure that. You know, Celebrimbor needs some love. The casting of Charles Edwards has been getting a lot of flack, but if he does a good job and portrays Celebrimbor well, which I'm sure he will, uh, people are going to turn around and get on your train pretty quick. He's going to blow everyone away. That's the last thing I'll say on this podcast. Charles Edwards is going to blow everyone away, and... Uh, just watch this space watch this space i would i would bet my not significant life savings but i bet them on it he's going to blow people <laughs> of all the things to bet on i love that it's Kellerbimbor. yes yes well that's going to do it for us today if you like what we're doing here please do subscribe leave us a review on apple Podcasts. share us with your friends share us on social media it really is the best way to support us And don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Watch Party Wheel of Time with Rorik Saima and the crew of newbies. And of course, our newest Watch Party pod, A Watch Party of Ice and Fire. They're all about uh, George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, and they'll be talking a lot about HBO's new House of the Dragon series, as well as any future spinoffs that come come our way. So a brand new podcast just dropped the other day, several episodes all at once. So go check them out. I know you'll be hooked. It's a fun new crew. Uh, really new stuff they're really creative there's games there's trivia um i'm really excited to have you all listen to that so please do check them out and until next time may the hair on your toes never fall out And people say Amazon's marketing is bad, and I, I, I would say to that, I think it's been frustrating, but frustrating is not always bad. Sometimes it is very smart. Yeah, we have to remember that even though Amazon's marketing has felt like the pot that will never boil, it's not the pot's fault that we've been watching it for so long and so intently. It's just because we're crazy Tolkienists, and there's nothing more in the world that we want than information about the show. For normal people, I think Amazon's marketing has probably been pretty effective. You know, the order Mm. of the rollout, the types of uh, marketing materials they've had. I do think they could have gotten the marketing started a little earlier, you know, get the buzz going a little earlier. I do agree with that criticism. But that being said, I don't know anything about marketing, so don't listen to anything I have to say. Yeah, I think it's it's very subjective. I think... (sighs) You know, there's there's an argument to be made that I mean, I think there's no argument. The first teaser trailer was not effective. It didn't bring in people who weren't familiar with the books. I watched a lot of YouTube reactions. Most people went, "Yeah, I guess." Like, but what's it about? Who are these people? You know, there was no. I think I think the Super Bowl teaser was a bit of a misstep. But I will say, I think everything they've done since has been an improvement each time. 
And I think that part of it is Amazon Studios having this approach where they market one show at a time because they're not a massive movie studio. They they tend to go, I'm going to market the boys and then this and then that. So, But I, 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 I would promise people, think about how much advertising you saw for the boys in the last two months. You're going to see that over the next 37, 40 days, how many it is. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up people's response to Amazon's marketing because... For the first time, I just showed my wife these trailers. I think I've mentioned it before oh. on the show. She is not a Tolkien fan. Not that she dislikes Tolkien, mm-hmm. but she just couldn't care less. Mm-hmm. And, you know, bless her heart for putting up with me doing a podcast about it and uh, reading <laughs> Tolkien all the time. We were talking the other day, and I don't think she's even seen the Jackson movies all the way through without falling asleep, which hurts my heart to say. But, you know, it just doesn't, uh, just doesn't mm-hmm. float her boat for whatever reason. It's painful. Uh, just last night, I showed her the last two trailers. And, you know, I'm excited because these trailers got me excited. And I was, <laughs> while she was watching, I was staring at her, like, intently, just, like, analyzing her face for her reaction to try and <laughs> figure out, is she as excited as I am? And I'm maybe going to get her into Lord of the Rings through this mm. show. And her reaction was, well, <laughs> after she stopped laughing at me for staring at her, um, her reaction was not negative, but kind of ambivalent. You know, she was like, well, the shots look cool. I mean, it looks cool, mm. but you know, what's it about? I have no idea. And yeah. boy, that was a splash of cold water to the face. And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, you know, if you don't know anything about this world, if you have no investment whatsoever and you don't recognize any of the mm. characters, which plenty of people will be in that boat, you really aren't going to have any idea what's going on in those trailers other than you know, being able to recognize some generic aspects of it, like, okay, there's battle scenes and there's an evil something lurking out somewhere and there's a female character who says there's an evil. It's like, that doesn't tell you a whole lot. It's so interesting as well, I think. I've recently gone back and watched Game of Thrones' early trailers and I had my issues with that show, but it was clearly a pop culture phenomenon. Why was it a pop culture phenomenon? Because fundamentally, the story, especially in the early seasons, was very simple. There's the throne, there's people competing for it, and there's maybe these supernatural threats. Great. Super interesting to people for, for people to understand. Um, the trouble with Tolkien is most of his stories are about big metaphysical ideas, and if it's not Frodo taking the ring to Mordor, how in a trailer do you explain what the showrunners have said themselves, that the central theme of this show is mortality, death, loss, the, the the issue of the gift of Iluvatar to men. Um, and I think it's a real compliment to the show that they don't have any dialogue they could use in a trailer that's like, in the beginning, there was a bad guy, and he's back again. Because if they had rubbish dialogue like that, they'd just put it in the trailer because then everyone would be able to understand it. Um, but I, I, I will say that I think regardless of the marketing, I think the same thing will happen that happened with Game of Thrones. It took people by storm, and then what did all the people who had never read the books before go and do? They went and read the books, and I think we're going to see the exact same thing. I think that is why adaptations are so important. Uh, To give a shout-out to my friend Jack, we've been friends since childhood. He has read the trilogy, he loves the Peter Jackson films, and he hadn't really heard about the show. And we went for some drinks, and I told him about, you know, all this epic events, and the return of Sauron, and the forging of the rings. And the first thing he did, he said... What book should I read? I said, oh, you don't have to read a book. It's an adaptation. And he went, no, I want to read it. And I said, well, here's my old copy of The Silmarillion. And he is currently about halfway through, I think. So 
it, that may just be a personal anecdote, but I think we're going to see a lot of that. Well, that was a pretty sneaky trick by you, too, because he's going to discover that he'll find no relevant information in the Silmarillion until basically the end when he gets to the Calabeth. He, uh, he texted me the other day. And he said, uh, so uh, who's the villain? Is it Melkor or is it about the, uh, you know, the first children of Luvatar? And I was like, uh, not yeah, exactly. Yeah. Keep wait reading. for Keep it. Reading. Just wait, uh, for wait it. till you get wait to the last two it. chapters of the book. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. But I'm sure he won't be mad at you for long because even though you tricked him, you tricked him into reading the Silmarillion, which is a oh, great yeah. and joyful experience. So we'll end up thanking you. Mm-hmm.